Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Steve, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure well, to be here. Thanks for having us, as usual. So uh, I watched Legos, uh, the Lego mer- uh, movie, earlier today and greatly enjoyed it um, for, for many reasons, aside from the fact that I think when I have my own children, I can use it as very direct propaganda for nearly all of my political beliefs. It also <laughs> reminded me that about 80% of the reason I want to have children is just so I can bring my Legos out of the basement from my parents' house. Uh, so I, I had a great time watching it. Did you all enjoy the movie? What did you think? Uh, loved it. Well, I, uh, you know, it is a children's movie and I found it dumb at times, but I got interesting things to say about it. Yeah. And I think if you're you're looking for, you know, sort of nuances of sophisticated plot or something like that. Yeah, you weren't going to find them. And and there were some bits that I kind of think didn't didn't make sense. But, you know, like like all the great kids movies, most of the most of the jokes were for adults. I was in a theater with about maybe 30 people and and half of whom were under 10 and my wife and I were laughing way more than the kids were. I mean I thought the first hour was hilariously funny. Uh but but the kids not so much not as much as I did anyway. And it has a great look. I mean the look yeah. is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it myself very much. I agree. I enjoyed the look in particular because uh now that we've we've moved to the point in our culture where we're actually getting rid of physical actors in favor of plastic actors, that means that those of us that have commanding baritone voices but are built like meerkats could potentially <laughs> become leading actors. Um, and actually, Paul, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you because you you've got uh, a lot of a lot of gravitas and a lot of thinking behind your uh, your career in terms of culture and media studies. Um, I realize that it's a movie about plastic pieces uh, and and that it has the the childish veneer to it, um, and it certainly is designed for children. But one of the things that I thought was intriguing was that it seemed to me to be almost a mashup of 1984 and Brave New World, and. Uh, uh, from from a cultural perspective, I think that's interesting because 1984 is this totalitarian regime, you know, almost North Korea, intense control. And Brave New World is this nobody even cares because they're so distracted by all of the, you know, gimmicky junk around them. So I, I thought it was kind of intriguing that they were able to merge the two. Well, it, to me, I, I look at it as a confusion on the part of the film. Uh, and you can see its ambiguity in the fact that the main villain is president business or Lord Business. Well, which is it? Right. Uh, is it the government that's the problem or business that's the problem? And I think the film has gotten so much credit from critics because it seems to be an anti-capitalistic film and to see business as the evil. But then the film was self-refuting because, of course, it's the greatest product placement film in history. Uh, it's all a way of selling Lego. And... Uh, Paul, yeah, you know, I mean, that is an excellent. You're right. It did not occur to me that I paid fourteen dollars to see an hour and a half long commercial. Uh, the, exactly. You were, you were well, just now bringing that up. I appreciate that. And and this is, but you know, this is the tension at the heart of a lot of art like this, right? I mean, yeah. you know, a guy like Michael Moore 
who has preached the anti-capitalist argument for so long makes makes tons of money. He's a really good entrepreneurial capitalist, right? So yeah. you know, there's there's there is a there is a core tension at the heart of a lot of these 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 bits of that appear to be anti-capitalist art. I think the interesting question about this movie is uh, do. Do, do, do the cre- did the creators accidentally make a movie that sends the opposite, or at least can be thought of as sending the opposite message yeah, that, that, than that's perhaps my, they intended? That's my feeling exactly. Uh, but the film has this inner contradiction that it says that commerce can't be creative, and yet it's a commercial film and very creative. <laughs> right. Uh, well, so it, I, it does refute itself. I'm actually going to disagree with both of you on this point. This might be that I am now so cognitively biased that I, I can only see through a very narrow scope at this point in my life. But it seemed to me that, that President Business, the, uh, the, the villain throughout this movie, was the embodiment of crony capitalism. Yeah. Well, it, it was yeah. an, an, an unholy alliance of mm-hmm. yeah. business and government, which, yep. which uh, I didn't really think was contradictory. I, I thought it would have – if they were explaining it to children in a really in-depth way, they would have been like, hey, kids – Instead of democracy, we're just letting the Chamber of Commerce uh, take over the Senate. Um, so I, I didn't really see it as being contradictory. It was well, just showing the, that aspect of what happens. Yeah, I think you may be giving the filmmakers too much credit here. But <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> indeed, the way I would save it, and we're back to this theme we had with Dallas Buyers Club, we somehow have to keep distinguishing between true capitalism and crony capitalism. And in that sense, it, but the film didn't explore that enough. And, uh, uh, um, yeah. True. Yeah. Uh, I- and, and it ends up being something of a Rorschach test, you know, thing, right? You, yeah. you just you're going to see in it to a lot what what you cut, what you bring to it, right? The biases you bring to it. But again, now I'm going to go ahead and show you mine, right? <laughs> Which is, it seems to me that that it, it you can't possibly walk away from this film. I think thinking this is just business because these guys, unless you have this kind of really sort of weird radical left thing where you think that business will someday, I mean, they control the cops. They, you know, this is the state Mm -hmm. or at least the state in bed with, with this particular business to sort of see this as business alone, you know, as the bad guy here, I think, you know, completely, completely uh, miss, you know, misses a lot. And it's quite possible. I think that the producers, writers, you know, didn't see that, but then what the audience chooses to walk out with, right, is always a different question. Yeah, I I agree with you completely on that because no business could have the comprehensive right. effect in shaping a whole society that Lord business. That's why, again, I, it's important yeah. to remember he's Lord business or president business. Yep. Yep. I, I missed that, actually. Do they refer to him as Lord business periodically? Enough? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, in, so. his, in his sort of darker more evil right <laughs> you know he, he's i think a couple points he's lord business yeah which is which with the sort of echoes of feudalism there are interesting too right i mean if you really want to read it more deeply right there's there's something interesting going on there too I, i'm i'm a little bit alarmed by the fact that apparently i'm giving uh incredible credit to the writers of a lego movie but when i read moby dick i go uh, okay guy in a whale <laughs> I, I i don't know i don't see anything deeper here so i'm a bit troubled yeah, on my hey, you know what you know andrew right <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> Maybe I'm just that wowed by 3D animation. If you add 3D animation to it, I assume that it that it's amazing. And, and while we're talking about the art for a second, I, the the performances were terrific, right? I mean, Morgan <laughs> Freeman was hysterically yeah, funny, yeah, absolutely, in a way that I did not expect. And Neeson too, you know, and and sort of that physical character with Neeson's voice was even better, right? So I, I just to, to me, there were some really good and inspired kind of casting choices here. That the politics aside. 
really made it, I, you know, certainly the first hour is much funnier than the last half hour. Mm-hmm. But that first hour was very, very funny, I thought. I agree. Well, and, I, and I'd like to get to, to what I consider the central theme, at least from our perspective, of, of what's going on in the film. Uh, there's there's a ton of little uh, things that we could talk about that are peppered through, uh, We, I mean, with the police force and all these different aspects. But what struck me repeatedly is kind of the the main theme emerging throughout the piece was this contrast between central planning and emergent order uh, or you know this this you know command economy the soviet style um, totalitarian regime versus uh, the chaos of people doing whatever they're wanting to do and in the film uh, quite fortunately the, the the chaos wins out and it turns out that the chaos is not in fact chaos but this very productive force that enables all of the individuals in aggregate to be much more creative than this one monolithic contraption that's trying to run everything. Yeah, that's where the film is very strong in my, in my view. It shows there's two understandings of the world. One, the world is created by a single intellect, uh, the perfect planner, and then it's frozen. Uh, it's so perfect you don't want it to change. That's why the whole business with crazy glue is so powerfully symbolic, uh, yeah. that you take this world once you create it and you glue it in place and nothing must ever change. Against yeah. that is the idea that the world is chaotic and that we got to go with the flow and take things apart and put them back together. In that sense, the film is really spot on on the difference between a centrally planned world and a spontaneous ordered world. Yeah, and I'll add just two things to that, you know, sort of tie-ins to the ways that that classical liberals sort of think about the world. I mean, to me, the contrast was the one that Virginia Pastrell pointed out in her her first book between dynamism and stasism, right? This belief... That 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 you know the world is a dynamic, ever-changing place. Uh, you know evolution and all these sorts of processes of change that are good and positive, and that the enemy is really the belief that we have to stop everything, that we have to freeze things in place, and that unforeseen change is the danger. Whereas the other side sees that as the great gift. And another tie-in here is the sort of idea that we see, you know, in the work of the philosopher Robert Nozick, where he says, liberty upsets patterns, right? This is part of his critique of of John Rawls, which is the idea when you try to engage in this top-down, you know, allocation of resources that that tries to create an intended outcome, you you either have to give up, either you have to take away people's freedom, right? Or if you don't take away their freedom, you're never going to get that pattern. You're never going to get that intended outcome. Liberty upsets patterns. And I thought that was one of the most interesting messages, sort of subversive messages of this film, was that anytime you try to freeze things in place, it means taking away people's freedom. And with it and with freedom comes this kind of messy, imperfect, but wonderful place. I, I think that that's, that's well put. Um, absolutely. And, and the, the people that would like to impose the pattern um, are oftentimes uh, what we call technocrats in our society. I think uh, historically, I mean, we've, we've tried, and I say we as a species, have tried having a model of a, a monolithic um, entity full of experts running everything, and it was called the Soviet Union, and it failed absolutely terribly, just astoundingly so at every single level. Uh, now, today, I, I'm not comparing our, our current government to the Soviet Union. I think that that would be something of a stretch. However, we, we do hear this term technocrat a lot, yeah. which is the idea that um, there there are these given fields that really should be administered and controlled by ideally – Guys in white lab coats who went to Harvard or Yale, uh, yeah. and they should be running we, everything. 
Here's where the film is particularly strong and the tie into Lego works perfectly because the, the epitome of the technocrat in the 20th century was the architect. Uh, people like Le Corbusier, these city planners, uh, who thought of architecture as imposing forms on people who wanted to create the perfect city, perfectly zoned. And, and this film gets to the heart of what's wrong with that kind of architecture. That it's imp- it's a kind of technocratic imposition on uh, ordinary lives, and here, say the writings of Jane Jacobs yes. are so wonderful. Uh, yes. the, the death and life of American cities. Yeah. She was the one who attacked this idea of zoning that you have to plan out a city so people work in one place and they live in another place. That's the kind of order this film uh, sees uh, Lord Business wanting to oppose. And Jacobs showed how that killed American cities. That you. Need a mixture of business and uh, residential areas. Uh, it makes for a vibrant community. Uh, there's another very good book by James Scott called "Seeing Like a State," yes, which is also about this same obsession. A city like Brasilia, for example, the capital of Brazil. You know, this perfectly planned city. I think Oscar Niemeyer was the architect, and it turns out not to work. Uh, they forgot to put in the restaurants. They forgot <laughs> to, you know, as uh, 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 so the 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 film actually is a very good commentary on one subset of the whole issue of sub uh, of central planning, which is architecture and city planning. I, I, I had not thought of the Jane Jacobs reading, Paul. That's that's exactly it. I mean, I think I think that that's exactly right. The one thing I'd add to that is that 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 technocratic urge that that we've been talking about, you know, in the twentieth century or late nineteenth century, is was central to the progressive era, right? And the sort of exactly, you know, yeah. creation of so many of the sort of regulatory agencies. And the interesting thing about that was that it was quickly taken advantage of by uh, elements of the private sector to sort of shape that legislation and shape that government intervention in ways that, that you know, they could have a role in and benefited them. And we certainly see that at, at work in, in the Lego movie in the ways in which that sort of ambiguity we were talking about at the beginning between is it is it business? Is it government? Plays out. So that is very much, I think, the, the technocratic urge and one that is is still with us. Uh, I agree, and I, actually, I, I want to uh, key off of your your comment on zoning, Paul. Um, the the two thoughts I have on that I, I've lived in the United Kingdom uh, a couple of times, and I've also lived in truly boring suburbs that were planned out. Um, and uh, I, I kind of I like the 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 human element of of uh, older cities that weren't directly planned. And actually, in the UK, they've done similar things too. They have there, there's a quote unquote American city in England, and it's one of the most hated cities in the entire country because it's incredibly boring, and the English can't navigate it because everything looks the same because it's on a grid system. Uh, but you know the the other the other cities that happened organically and naturally have much more character and flair to it on a creative level. But on a on a business level, um, I mean that's that's me making an aesthetic argument. A lot of people would disagree with me, particularly if they have poor navigational sense. But on on a on a business level, when you get into to zoning regulation and zoning laws, uh, a lot of the time zoning laws aren't actually designed to to benefit the population. They're designed like much else to benefit a particular group um, that has already laid stake to a particular part of town. Uh, there was a great story. I mean, it was kind of one of these anecdotal stories, but it was nonetheless true. It happened about two years ago where a kid was, I think, selling hot dogs or something to raise money for college in front of Walmart with Walmart's permission. And the uh, the city shut him down 
because he was a small business in a medium business zone or something like that. And they were fairly straightforward about it. And they went, look, the, the businesses in the city have contributed a lot and we owe it to them to protect them from outside businesses. Uh, and they were fairly brazen about it. Yep, yeah. that's well, that's it. what this film is about. Uh, the imagination of a child is much more creative. And what you see, uh, the children don't observe so-called rational categories. They want to mix things together. They want to mix pirates with Batman. Uh, that's what makes them creative. When you try to plan out the city perfectly ahead of time, you are going to end up with something static. Uh, you're going to end up with what looks like perfection. You know, I looked this up. Aristotle discusses this way back uh, in the politics book two. He talks about the first city planner, guy he calls Hippodamus, and he talks about how this guy wanted, everything had to be in threes. He wanted to divide the city up into three uh, sections and have three different kinds of citizens and have three different kind of verdicts. And it's it's amazing that Aristotle understood this, uh, that a person with a mathematical intellect would destroy human life uh, <laughs> by, by trying to create uh, this perfect pattern based on numbers, uh, not on human reality. And it's funny, Aristotle says of this guy, Hippodamus, uh, that he had long hair and wore expensive clothes, but wore this uh, same clothes in summer and winter. So he is kind of that scientific technocratic type. It's amazing. Aristotle understood that already uh, when he was writing the politics uh, back in ancient Greece. And, you know, one of the other themes of this movie, too, we just we touched on a little bit, and I want to just expand on it a, t a bit more, is this sort of notion of the imperfection of these bottom-up emergent order processes. I mean, Paul just hit on it. You know, the, the in the movie, the, 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 the tools that they create to help the, the good guys create to help them defeat the bad guys are, are kind of these ugly, weird, hybrid, you know, crossing all the categories, not, nothing that the sort of rational ordered mind would make because they always have to work with what they're given, right? And, mm -hmm. and in fact, what the master builders do, what they're able to do, right, is, is to see these pieces all around them and imagine how they can be combined into something useful. It's not going to, notice, it's something useful. It's not something perfect or beautiful necessary, but necessarily, but something useful. And, and that skill becomes, you know, crucial to the, to the plot of the movie. And that is what we see happen in the marketplace. We see entrepreneurs create these things that, that, you know, are, are kind of weird and strange, but they work. And, and they work in ways that, that don't happen if you try to make the perfect and the beautiful. Yeah. And I, I just point out that this is, you know, as, as an, as an Austrian school economist watching this movie, I couldn't help think about the way that Austrian school economists think about capital theory, right? Yes. And that sunken that costs. Yeah, they're, right, right. And, and the idea of, you know, sort of, uh, uh, that, that what, uh, what makes a thing useful is that someone believes it can fit into their production plan, their entrepreneurial plan. It's not about the objective qualities, the scientific qualities of the, of the piece, right? So you have to make a, you know, have to make a vehicle to get out of trouble. You, you assemble it from what you have. That's all we could ever do is yeah. play the hand yeah. history's dealt us. And, and that, I, that theme of, of the sort of, functionality of imperfection was was a powerful one for me and it really really came out clearly 
Yeah, think back to cash for clunkers. That's yeah, a right. example yeah. of the technocratic idea. We just got to get all these old cars off the road, not understanding that they represent a reasonable capital that could still be used. Yep. And Jane Jacobs is very good on this. She talks about the need for old buildings and how useful they are in the, in the continued growth and operation of a city. Again, an urban planner's idea is let's just destroy a complete neighborhood and build it up from the ground. That waste a ton of capital that's sitting there. And we've learned that urban homesteading is such a better way now uh, to improve a city than to just – we had that disastrous era of urban renewal uh, based on a scientistic uh, notion that anything old is bad and we need an entirely new order. So let's waste all this good brick that's in place. And, and we can't – what we can't see there too is the social capital, right? We can't yes. see the human relationships that make – and this is a Jane Jacobs point too – that make make the city or make a neighborhood a neighborhood. And there's some of that, I think, going on in the film too, right? That there are these, these relationships among the, the players, right? That are, that are crucial to, to success uh, that, you know, that are invisible if you're trying to impose this static perfection on things. Yeah. I don't want to make too much of the film's brilliance, but the pirate would be great in that yeah. respect because he keeps being reconstructed. There's right. almost nothing left of him. He's right. just a bunch of spare parts. Right. But in a way, that's it works. functional. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. I'll, uh, I'll add really quick on, on the note of the, uh, the, the city planner. Um, one, one of the jokes that I do in stand-up is how boring it is to try and play SimCity as a libertarian. Because <laughs> uh, you you basically start the city and then let the free market do it. And the, the game is not designed in such a way, but it does indicate that mindset of um, I, I I think a lot of people that are in that technocratic mindset. Uh, I I don't think that there's anything sinister to most of them. I think the problem is that there's there's a lot of people that are they're problem solvers by nature, and they think what's the biggest tool that I can use to solve the problem, uh, and it it is the government in this particular instance, um, and that creates all of the problems that we're describing and uh, stymies all of these other things. And one of the things that that stymies that I, I'd like to get your perspective on is the concept of emergent order or spontaneous order. Uh, I uh, I don't know if I'm smart enough to qualify as an Austrian economist, but it's my understanding that Hayek talks about that a good deal, and I, I'm curious to see your your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and what what you're seeing happen here is exactly that kind of you know bottom up emergent order. What what creates the the productive resources? What create what what they're able to do? Uh, what the, what the good guys are able to do to to to, to successfully combat? You know the the bad guys uh, comes from the bottom up, and and they're just you know from from their ability to take what they have in hand and kind of you know coordinate their behavior without a top down uh, overarching plan. Uh, in fact, you know at one point they try kind of this little mini plan, and it sort of really doesn't work. And it's only when they each recognize that they can exploit their own skills. I mean, one of the running jokes is the is the eighties you know eighties piece <laughs> who wants to keep building a spaceship, right? right? Yeah. And finally gets his chance, right? Because wait. You know that's that's what what, what was needed, uh, and I think this again this idea that somehow we know from the from the beginning what's needed and how to do it and all that kind of stuff right is is, is the problem. And one little thought about that goes back to the earlier point. One of the problems that the top down scientific planners have is they don't understand that the way to deal with problems of complexity is through decentralized, distributed, bottom up processes, uh -huh. and and. But interestingly, most intellectuals who want top down in the social world understand that point when it comes to the natural world and biological evolution. They're, you know, it, 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 intelligent design to them in biology seems stupid, but 
what they don't realize is it's just it's equally as stupid in the social world. It's equally as unscientific there. And and I think this movie helped perhaps see some of that, you know, make that point that there's a real analogy between the two. Yeah. The social planners, I call them creationists yeah. when it comes to economics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, they, you know, what, what you see in the film is the choices between the single mind, Lord Business, uh, who, after all, is Will Ferrell, uh, controlling mm-hmm. everything, and then all these people pooling their resources, yep. pooling their planning, and how much richer it is uh, when all these minds work together instead of thinking that you could get a single person who could plan out everything. And again, that image of once you got it perfect, you'd glue it in place. Yep. That great moment when when Lord Business learns to renounce the glue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would our social planners were the same? <laughs> I, I, I would love it if there were a, a built-in uh, a, a built-in sunset clause to every law so that yep. the Congress spent most of its time just renewing laws rather than coming up with new ones. I think that would be great. And to to back up a little bit, uh, Steve, to to your earlier point about top-down and decentralization, um, I I completely agree with you on that. And while it would would be a stretch to say that the Lego movie is in any way anecdotal about federalism, um, I I think it's worth pointing out that with with these top-down systems, um, you're, you're dealing with lots of different complex situations. And in general, the, the, the people of the Old West in the Lego world probably know how to deal with their horse overpopulation problem better than the guys in the giant tower, just as um, the people in Middle Zealand probably know how castle safety regulations work a little bit better than some distant guy in the, the, the quote-unquote think tank. Um, and so it's probably better for them to come up with their own solution that's working for their smaller environment than to have a one-size-fits-all solution. And, right. And and the other part of that, of course, is if, you know, one of those Lego worlds can come up with one, you know, some way of doing things that others can observe and imitate, especially if it, you know, obviously if it's successful. So one of the advantages of sort of federalism and multiple rule systems within the same, you know, geographic area or contigu- contiguous geographic areas is that you can you can learn through that same kind of evolutionary process of, of imitation and, and, and replication. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that was a that was another interesting little a little subplot of this of the movie as and well. As, as contrasted to, I mean, kind of how it works now in our society is that, you know, tax dollars are they're sent to the federal government, which basically redirects them and sends them back in smaller portions. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you're, you're sending in a, a cash full of envelope and you're, you're getting back a gift card um, that tells well, you how you're going to be sent, uh, spending that money. Yeah. And, and, it, and there's you know often only one way or at least one highly incentivized way anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, uh, a, a couple of the things that I, I wanted to, to touch on that I think are, are incidental to this. Um, I, I did think it was funny that they had a giant think tank, which was the repository for brilliant people otherwise unable to affect change. Uh, mm-hmm. which, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I aspire, by the way, to eventually be a, a, a Cato fellow. So uh, I, I hope that, that doesn't kneecap me when PG work retires. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed that very much. Another thing that, that I that I thought was interesting was that early on in the film, um, they mentioned that at one point, the, the denizens of, of this Lego universe had been able to freely move back and forth between their places. Uh, and, and President Business stopped that because the, yeah. the free movement of people between borders um, was was unsettling to him and problematic to him. And um, yeah, that's it's a, yeah, another it's a, example of how he's yeah. not a businessman but a government right. official, mm-hmm. right? And and an, an, another example of how liberty upsets patterns, right? I mean, you know, if if you if you're sort of committed to that static, glued down version of the world, you certainly can't have people exiting and entering your society, much less doing the other things they do internally. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I think you're right. Like, uh, to, to go back to the very beginning, to kind of loop back earlier, when, when you were both talking about establishing patterns and how liberty changes patterns, uh, I, I was reminded my, my undergraduate degree was in world history and in, and in, uh, and, and in religious history. Uh, and in Buddhism, and I'm really paraphrasing this here, but in Buddhism, Buddha said that basically um, people hate change. Uh, change happens all the time, and it really pisses people off. Mm -hmm. um, and and that that is some that is a byproduct of liberty that it's going to upset these patterns. Yeah, and uh, the film captures that very well. And you know, it, this is reflected in science fiction all the time. There are basically two kinds of science fiction stories. Kind of the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Star Trek was that kind of socialist vision of the future. Everything's militarized. Everyone wears the same uniforms. Everything's at the exact same stage of technological development. The great thing about Star Wars is it showed there'd be junk in the future. Yep. <laughs> you know, you'd <laughs> still it. be patching up an old spaceship. Uh, people would be wearing different stuff. I mean, uh, science fiction is basically either socialist or libertarian. And scientists, unfortunately, have a tendency to try to envisage a world that's all at one time. And again, it's this idea, if anything's up to date, everything's got to be up to date, even if it means destroying vast amounts of perfectly usable uh, uh, material. Uh, and I think this film touched on that because, again, you see the child's imagination is genuinely variable and can put up with different worlds and can put up with messiness. Uh, but this kind of scientific imagination uh, won't tolerate any kind of diversity like that. Yep. Well put. And we're, we're going to be... Uh, wrapping up in a moment. Before we do, just on a personal level, I'm curious, did either of you grow up with Legos or play with them? I I did. Uh, more uh, Some. Uh, my kids to some degree, too, though. Never the elaborate stuff. And one of the things right. I liked about this was that I think I, I was a good example, and to some degree my kids were a good example of taking the the sort of, you know, generic pieces and making our own things out of them rather than buying the $400 Death Star kit and having to follow 40 pages of instructions. We didn't get Danish toys in 1950s Brooklyn. Uh, I you think you just had asbestos. And... I did have bricks, but it, I will say this in this product placement for Lego. The Lego vision is of things that can be put together and taken apart. Yes. That's the whole thing about Lego. It's Lego a profit and loss system. Yeah. Yeah. You don't use glue. Uh, and in that sense, it is a vision of spontaneous order yeah. that whatever can be put together can be taken apart. And we can even call it creative destruction if we want to go all Joseph Schumpeter uh, on us at this point. That, no, I, I think that's actually a perfect button to put on this particular podcast that uh, uh, we, we can explore the themes of, you know, a, a command economy of spontaneous order and of creative uh, creative uh, destruction all, all at once uh, through the Lego uh, Lego movie. Um, so, so, gentlemen, it's been a, a pleasure speaking to you. You've enlightened me and hopefully our, our listeners as well. And uh, I will join you next time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com slash econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.